Um, well, thank you all for joining us for Critical Care Grand Rounds today. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce a friend, a colleague, a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Jason Rose. Um, so as I was teasing with him, you can see that he wears many hats and has lots of different titles. Um, but Dr. Rose did his uh, medical school training at Wayne State before doing his internal medicine residency at Duke. Um, we were lucky enough to cross paths at University of Pittsburgh, where he was a pulmonary and critical care fellow. Um, he's since come down here to the University of Maryland, and we're very fortunate to have him. Um, Dr. Rose has developed, I guess, what we might call a spinoff company or, or a company over the years that's called Globin Solutions, for which I think you're the president and CEO at this point. Um, he is currently an associate professor of medicine uh, here at University of Maryland. He's here in our division of pulmonary and critical care medicine. He's also, um, interestingly, the associate dean of innovation uh, and physician science development, which I think is an, an awesome role for him and a, a job he clearly is well deserving of and, and perfectly suited for. Um, I asked J Jason to come talk to us today about some of the work he's done in terms of the heme proteins that he's worked on, especially regarding his carbon monoxide poisoning, which I think is critically important, obviously, for us as critical care providers, but also uh, maybe with some interesting um, application to some of the patients we see through shock trauma. So, um, Jason, thank you for taking time in your super busy schedule to come chat with us. And I'm really excited to have you here and hear updates on your work. Um, without further ado, I will turn it over to you. Thanks so much for that introduction. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for all you do for uh, critical care medicine here. And um, it's exciting to be able to talk in front of everybody at Grand Round. So thanks for the invitation. Uh, first off, maybe as, as Dr. Levine um, alluded to, I am part of a company and as such, I have disclosures. I'm a co-inventor on patent structure at Heme Protein Therapeutics. I'm going to be talking about today, particularly in carbon monoxide poisoning also halogen gas antidotes. I'm co-founder, president, and CEO of Globin Solutions. I'm shareholder, um, and it, basically Globin Solutions licenses technology from University of Pittsburgh and the NIH on some things I've invented. Uh, I'm also co-founder of Omnibus Medical Devices, which is a critical care, more mechanical ventilation company, very early stage. And then I also do some medical legal consulting. So, Today, as the, as the title alluded to, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, identifying a problem, finding a solution, and then what do you do when you, you find a potential solution. So I will take a step back, though, and let's start with a case and why is this relevant to critical care medicine. So this is actually a patient we saw at our MICU and at UPMC, uh, Presbyterian. So it was a 60-year-old female found unconscious in the garage, was intubated in the field was hemodynamically unstable at arrival to the emergency department. Um, and there's the vitals there. So a hypotensive tachycardic, but saturated 100% um, on peripheral SATs. Initial lab results, lactate was mildly elevated. Um, troponin was up slightly. Um, I mean, as you can see here, uh, maybe a, uh, PCO2 is a little low, but uh, PO2 is actually pretty high. And then uh, biocarb was a little low, but the carboxyhemoglobin level was 24%. So this patient um, obviously had carbon monoxide poisoning. They were on IV fluids and briefly on norepinephrine. Um, they actually had an echocardiogram that showed a non-dilated um, left ventricle with an ejection fraction of 40%. I don't have the movie. I wasn't going to try to put that in my slide, but this is an image, if you will, uh, the, the patient actually had apical ballooning and carbon monoxide-induced Takasubo syndrome. And follow-up, the patient actually um, had pretty significant anoxic brain injury. They did get some gradual improvement. 
they were extubated, but they did require inpatient rehabilitation. Subsequent uh, TTE did show complete recovery of LV function, though. This is an example of, of a critically ill carbon monoxide poisoning patient. And that's really the problem, and this is the basis of a lot of my, my research, both um, clinical molecular mechanisms and then trying to develop a, a countermeasure and antidote to it. So carbon monoxide, I'm going to go a little brief on, on the background here. It's, it's a polluting gas. Um, normally, this is getting really basic chemistry, but um, in combustion or burning, you have um, an organic fuel like methane. You add oxygen, it, it burns, and you get CO2 in, in water. Incomplete combustion, which is a limited supply of oxygen, that top equation is your ideal. Mostly what happens is incomplete combustion. You get a carbon source, less amount of oxygen, you form carbon monoxide. So this is if you have a nice operating gas stove, it's the top. If you're in a house fire, it's the bottom. And that's really the source of carbon monoxide poisoning. So uh, where we see it in real life, building fires, motor vehicle exhaust, but any sort of internal combustion engine, um, particularly actually electric generators, there's clear evidence that when you have a national, when you have a, a natural disaster and the electricity goes out, you see a huge uptick in carbon monoxide poisoning because people are running electric generators and or their stoves not appropriately ventilating their houses. Um, when when all the electricity was down in Texas, they had a lot of cases with this because it was also cold. Um, and it's really dangerous to not have electricity. Up as low as six parts per million can be potentially toxic. This is a list of all your other sources. There are some occupational, obviously firefighters is obvious but heavy machine operators, toll booth attendants, if you think about all the exhausts they're getting, and then um, also miners and war fighters with, with all the different smoke inhalation and in a closed space. What's the size of the problem? So there's 72,000 incidences uh, reported to the fire departments in the U.S. alone, 50,000 emergency room visits, 4,500 to 9,000 hospital admissions, and 1,500 to 2,000 deaths per year in the U.S., but it is a global problem. So there's, there's multiple worldwide, uh, worldwide estimates. And for instance, uh, Taiwan had 25,000 cases over a 13-year period. Um, South Korea actually in one single year had over 1,000 deaths by suicide from carbon monoxide poisoning sources. China, um, it's, it's, uh, it's also a big problem for if you look at that number, 16,000 unintentional poisoning deaths, about 20% of those were carbon monoxide, so thousands of people. And then in Europe, it's also a big problem here, some numbers listed there. Um, so it's everywhere. What is the pathophysiology of carbon monoxide poisoning? So we all are pretty familiar, um, being critical care doctors, about what the lungs do. Um, they help transport our blood that contains red blood cells, that contain hemoglobin, tetramers, that will bind oxygen in the high PO2 environment and then unload the oxygen in the low PO2 uh, environment in the periphery of organs and tissues. In carbon monoxide, car uh, hemoglobin actually has a very high affinity for carbon monoxide over oxygen. And so the carbon monoxide will actually kick off oxygen. Um, and as little as, again, 6 to 10 ppm will give you uh, a discernible effect here. So it gives you two real types of effects that lower oxygen delivery. One is there's, uh, these are the ox hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curves I showed you, little cartoons. On the y-axis is O2 content, and on the x-axis is PO2. 
So when the carbon monoxide bind kicks off that oxygen, you get an anemia-like effect because those hemoglobin molecules are not participating anymore in oxygen delivery. You also get an effect where if you get one carbon monoxide binding on the tetramer, it will stabilize um, the relaxed state, reduce delivery to peripheral tissue. So it's a further decrease in oxygen delivery. There's a second effect, and this is it's more, it's more complex than just this, but really it's, it's a contributor from the mitochondria. So here's a normal mitochondria and really zoomed in there on your electron transport chain is complex for cytochrome C oxidase. And if we go back to biochemistry, there's actually heme centers in, in complex four. And that's the end result of oxidative phosphorylation is this last heme center. As you can see here, oxygen ultimately gets reduced to water. That's driving ATP gradient and ATP synthase, cellular energy. Um, so what ends up happening when carbon monoxide, as it will bind to hemoglobin, it will also bind to this second car, um, heme center. That shuts down oxidative phosphorylation. It shuts down the proton pumping, creating our gradient for ATP synthase. It also creates a backup of all these electrons, and that leads to free radical damage. I actually, I just did that um, in my head, but I had it listed here on the slides already. So um, it's a three-pronged effect. But ultimately, this leads to free radical and superoxide formation that does lead to that cellular damage. And that's thought to be a contributor for a lot of the toxicology of carbon monoxide. So there's really two big clinical manifestations of carbon monoxide poisoning that are concerning. Um, I'm not going through all the symptoms you can get, et cetera, but it's really down to two aspects. One is neurocognitive effects. Obviously, people can come in comatose, but even more concerning is 20 to 40% of survivors of carbon monoxide poisoning will have neuroaffective sequelae long-term, pretty much a permanent effect. Um, it's often delayed, so you can come in, you have a headache or CO poisoned, you get fresh air, you feel better, you go home, and it can be a delayed presentation. Um, there was one incident of a mining accident in Japan where 33 years later, 70% of the patients had a cognitive deficit. Um, risk factors for these are older age, but also longer exposures, more like subacute, you could say. It's not necessarily directly related to the amount of carboxyhemoglobin level you have. The other aspect of this is, is the cardiovascular impact, and this really comes into play when you're talking about the patients who are sick enough to get admitted. That's usually how I define moderate to severe carbon monoxide poisoning. If you're sick enough to get admitted to the hospital. So if you look at that subset of patients, which is about, let's say, 9,000 a year in the U.S., one-third of them will, uh, will have a myocardial injury that can be with or without underlying coronary artery disease, and then almost one-half will have LV dysfunction. Um, there's also electrophysiologic effects with repolarization abnormalities and QTC prolongation. Probably the most critical aspect of this, though, is that these folks have increased risk of long-term mortality. Um, there's various contributors to that. I'll talk a little bit later, but especially those CO poison survivors who have a cardiac um, involvement, they have much higher rates of mortality long-term, even after they survive. Current CO poisoning management is very limited. There is no antidote. Really, they, they involve increasing the alveolar PaO2, which will increase the clearance of carboxyhemoglobin. And it comes down to you breathe room air, you breathe supplemental oxygen, or you get hyperbaric oxygen. And it's a pretty simple and well-established um, clearance rate 
for humans. And so here is y-axis is carboxyhemoglobin level in x-axis is time in minutes. The green is room air. The half-life to clear carboxyhemoglobin is 320 minutes if you're just breathing regular air. If you get on 100% oxygen through like a face mask, um, it goes down to 74 minutes. That's the black curve on this chart. And then if you actually get to um, hyperbaric oxygen, when you can get it, it comes down to a 20 to 30 minute half-life. So that's really the crux of treatment. There's also something called ClearMate that I'll talk a little bit about. There's a lot of limitations to hyperbaric oxygen. Only 250 to 300 centers nationwide offer emergency hyperbarics. Um, if you're going to a wound healing center that's only open nine to five, they don't do this. It's, it's really got to be an emergency team. There's long treatment delays. The, one of the best clinical trials, the median delay to therapy was five hours, um, and that's in a protocolized system that was ready to do this. Um, only about 1,500 patients of those 50,000 actually get the hyperbaric oxygen due to these logistical challenges. There's some aspects where people at question, is there hyperoxic injury? If you've got kind of a re, if, uh, ischemia reperfusion, um, there's also some other risks like decompression sickness. And then actually, if someone comes in altered to dive them, you really need, they could get ear barotrauma. So you need a, a meringotomy. If we look at the efficacy of, of hyperbaric when it's been tested, and this is a meta-analysis of, of several trials, um, overall, um, there actually isn't a benefit when you look at that, 0.54 to 1.12. And the question here is, could you reduce neurocognitive sequelae at six, four to six weeks? In meta-analysis, it wasn't efficacious. If you look at the two best studies, um, one here highlighted from 1995 by Stephen Thome, who's here at Maryland. Um, that was an efficacious to reduce neurocognitive sequelae. And also Weaver et al., which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's considered probably the best trial, 150 patients, 75 each group. You did have quite a significant benefit to reduce it. But again, meta-analysis overall, it wasn't, it wasn't efficacious. Now, these are difficult trials. So there's some controversy around hyperbaric oxygen's efficacy. If you look at the American College of Emergency Physicians, they give it a level B recommendation. Um, you know, emergency physicians should use hyperbaric or high-flow normal baric oxygen for acutely CO poison patients. Their conclusion was it remains unclear if it's superior to regular oxygen. Um, some of their comments were there's heterogeneity between trials. Severity of poisoning was widely variant in them. Other some other limitations. But then if you look at the undersea and hyperbaric medical society, their conclusion is until there's both better information and, and other options, um, really the best studies show that there was a significant benefit and it should be considered in moderate severely poisoned patients. So there does exist controversy for hyperbaric. There's one other option that really hasn't gained, and, and you could probably imagine why when I tell you this. Um, this was, it's called normal capnic hyperpnea. And this is, was utilized actually in the 1800s and around the turn of the century, the last century, um, when they thought CO poisoning was thought to be a total body deficit for CO2. So what this device will do is actually give CO2 to induce tachypnea, which will then increase your clearance of carboxyhemoglobin. They're also getting oxygen. And there were some trials that showed that it would increase your clearance of CO somewhere between normal baric and hyperbaric oxygen. But as you can imagine, patients coming in obtunded, 
um, giving them CO2 of any form is sometimes at risk, right? So it hasn't been well adopted. You could say that. So really the conclusion on this background is, um, and some other aspects is on the mortality aspect, which we're very concerned about as critical care, is a, other evidence shows that acute mortality is associated with needing to be mechanically ventilated, having a cardiac arrest, both pretty obvious, a low pH, very high levels of carboxyhemoglobin, and also having loss of consciousness or syncope is associated with acute death. Survivors of acute poisoning have two to three times the long-term mortality of age-matched controls. This is usually higher in intentional and fire-related exposures. And major causes of death kind of will circle a bit around neurocognitive sequelae, where there's uh, things like alcoholism, motor vehicle accidents, um, intentional um, death. Um, there is a further increase in mortality when cardiac involvement. And generally, these patients, it's recommended close follow-up one to two months to assess their neurocognitive state. That's when you start picking up those delayed neurocognitive sequelae. And then, and then some, especially those that have cardiac involvement, you know, screening for coronary disease, follow-up cardiac risks. You have someone come in that's 35 that has a troponin elevation. They probably don't have cardiac, um, you know, coronary artery disease. Not to say they don't. You probably should investigate it, but um, it certainly can happen without coronary artery disease. So one thing we did when I was at, at University of Pittsburgh, and now I'm switching over, so that was your background, is could we use real-world evidence to examine CO poisoning outcomes and treatment efficacy? These trials are really hard to perform. Neurocognitive sequelae is a hard trial outcome, especially when you have heterogeneous, heterogeneous patients. So there's a thought that propensity, this was my colleague actually, Georgios Kitsios at Pitt had published published an article that said propensity score analyses are generally consistent with the findings of randomized clinical trials in critically ill patients, especially with the populations we work with. So could we use utilize retrospective studies for low occurring outcomes? And was it possible to test a mortality benefit to um, hyperbaric oxygen? So what we did is UPMC, where I came from um, just the other month, is a large integrated healthcare system with over 30 hospitals. It has a very good EMR, and we are able to really pull out data. So we looked at all CO poisoning cases over a set time, which was about 14 years. Originally, the name was in the new millennium when we started working this, because it was 2000, 2014. Um, we found in 15 of those hospitals that were online when we did our data poll, um, we identified patients via ICD-9 codes, we found 1,300 total encounters. Some were duplicates due to internal transfers and other reasons. And then we, we had uh, removed all children in this analysis, and we had almost 1,100 unique patient encounters. And then we further assessed the patients by trying – we actually looked at all of their charts, read their HMPs, ER notes, and we extracted certain amounts of data like symptoms. We extracted um, – subjective data that showed, did the patient have a cardiac involvement? We combined subjective and objective data, looking at recorded in the chart for arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, um, myocardial infarction, um, and then also elevated troponin, and then use of pressor drugs or anotropic agents. And then we, we also defined some patients around high risk. What are those um, features associated with death? So low pH, HBCO levels greater than 25%, fire exposure and syncope. 
we did also look at the exposure if we could abstract it. So we look in our patients, we actually had a very young population for what, what we usually see um, in the internal medicine world, um, probably similar to what's in the trauma world, average age of 44. 47% of our patients had high, a high-risk feature. Um, eight, about 20% were fire exposures. And almost 20% of the patients actually went through an intrahospital transfer. It was a sick population. Historically, it's thought that about 8% of the patients will get um, admitted. We had 27% of the patients admitted, and actually 8% came to the ICU, and 6% were vented, and 2.5% and saw pressors. We also, we were interested in the real-world data of who was getting hyperbaric oxygen with kind of some of the controversies. They actually fit well with the Hyperbaric Oxygen Society, who was getting them, greater than 91% of patients who got hyperbaric fit one high-risk feature. We also did some cutoff. What was the cutoff to providers? When we, we calculated out statistically, it was about 19% would be the trigger to get um, hyperbaric oxygen. It's interesting. Acute mortality, 1.3%. Um, it fit with the predictors of, of, of other features I described with acute mortality. Um, the best cutoff to predict death actually was 29% HBCO. We found one-year mortality, though, was 2.9%, and then two-year mortality was 4.4%. Factors there were a little bit different than acute. It was older age, which was the strongest association, renal dysfunction, and then things like, obviously, respiratory distress, cardiac complications initially. So what we did to assess mortality effects of hyperbaric oxygen is we looked at the variables that best predicted hyperbaric oxygen use. Um, this was cardiac complication, respiratory distress, altered mental status, HBCO, blood level, and syncope. Syncope and altered mental status weren't always the same. Most of the syncopes were in altered mental status, but some of the people who syncopized briefly weren't actually altered. They just kind of passed out. This, this enabled our propensity score. We did what was a five-to-one matching. So basically, 26% um, of our patients got um, HBO2. Um, we looked at uh, the differences between features in them, and the predictors were less than 0.1% on standardized differences. So essentially, that's our overall patient cohort. You have patients without HBO2 and those that received HBO2. Then you create this simulation where essentially you're um, received are compared with um, matched propensity score patients. And what we found was that Hyperbaric oxygen in this model actually reduced mortality quite a bit. By, um, with, it was associated with a 2.1% reduction in absolute risk and an odds ratio of 0.13. That was highly significant. And then HBO2 treatment was associated with 2.1% absolute risk reduction in one-year mortality as well. So when you did this conclusion, it actually was, it looked like pretty beneficial. And in a, there was one other similar study in a population set wasn't quite, uh, it was a little bit different of a population, but they also found in a nationwide poisoning database, there was some suggestion that there was lower mortality with hyperbaric oxygen. It was just an example of using, you know, real world data to try to see, you know, test the potential efficacy of a, of a treatment that's really hard to do a randomized controlled trial. So now I'm going to completely switch gears on you. And I'm going to talk more basic translational. And I want to talk about now our, our heme engineering program. 
So let's go back. Current options for therapy for carbon monoxide poisoning very limited. They're really augmenting the human metabolism of carbon monoxide. Um, obviously, all this data with the bad outcomes are presented in a world where hyperbaric is available, logistical challenges, but it's available. Um, there are limited issues. There are li- issues with limitations around hyperbaric oxygen. There's lots of significant treatment delays, et cetera. And then ClearMate just hasn't been adopted. That's normocapnic hyperpnea. The only thing we've really been successful with reducing the burden of CO poisoning is prevention. There's a lot of public health campaigns like the Invisible Killer, trying to get CO alarms in every home. Um, Although that hasn't been well studied, is that reducing mortality directly? One of the biggest things we've done is, is the introduction of a catalytic converter, which reduces CO emissions from motor vehicles by 75%. Motor vehicle-related CO deaths are down 80% over the last, you know, 30 to 40 years. And then improved fire codes. We're just using better building materials. So when you have one house fire, the entire neighborhood doesn't go up in a, in a set of row houses. There are some more safety with that. But this obviously is not, you know, an antidote. So our thought is, how do we approach this from the pharmacologic side? We've developed something called CO scavenging, which really utilizes high affinity molecules to scavenge carbon monoxide away from the hemoglobin, the mitochondria, uh, cytochrome C oxidase, and potentially even myoglobin in the heart. This is a little cartoon. Basically, we have our CO scavenging agent here in a um, hexagon, um, pulling off CO from mitochondria, myoglobin, and hemoglobin. And this is a larger cartoon of what I just showed you. Essentially, CO is a gaseous ligand, so you're shifting the equilibrium toward these agents. Um, I get a lot of questions about does it need to be intracellular, et cetera, blood-brain barrier. Ultimately, you're shifting an equilibrium of what can exist as a gaseous ligand. So that is an advantage. So going into really getting back to molecular biology here, um, our group, um, Mark Gladwin and, and my close collaborator and CSO of our company, Jesus Tejero, they published this before I came to the lab. And, and one thing that, that Mark's lab looks at is heme-containing proteins, nitric oxide. And so there was a new class of human globin proteins identified, cytoglobin, neuroglobin, that we really don't know the function of yet. And so this paper actually was looking at, could we decipher what neuroglobin does? What does human neuroglobin do do in the body? And the conclusion was, is potentially it could operate as a redox-regulated nitrate reductase. Um, There's there's two cysteine residues in this molecule that form a disulfide bridge in the oxidized form. What that does is it changes the binding of a distal histidine in the heme pocket. So there's six amino acids that touch that heme group. Um, One of them will kind of pop off in this oxidized form. That changes the affinity for gaseous ligands and also changes the nitrite reductase rate of this molecule so that NO2 becoming NO gets more profound in an oxidized state. So where am I going with this with CO poisoning? Is this does inspire you that there's something important about the heme pocket that if you modified it, can you make a significant change in its affinity for different gaseous ligands? And that's kind of where the logical, the logic goes to CO scavenging agents. So 
what our group did was really design a molecule that altered one of the histidine residues inside of the, the heme pocket space through protein engineering, recombinant protein technology. And basically, um, it's an H64Q mutation. And what we found is that just de novo with this mutation, this is laser flash photolysis, the CAN over K off on the Y-axis, and then three different molecules. Um, you can see there's orders of magnitude increased affinity for carbon monoxide than hemoglobin. And so how can we, how can we show, is this going to work? This is an in vitro experiment where we actually poison RBCs with hemoglobin in them, um, expose them to CO, we get them to be um, all bound to carbon monoxide, and essentially we introduce our scavenging agent to these red blood cells, and we can scavenge out the carbon monoxide. We can measure all of this through absorbance spectroscopy because hemoglobin has a visible light absorbance. It's red. And if it goes from oxyhemoglobin to deoxyhemoglobin or to carboxyhemoglobin, it changes color. And so what the spectrophotometer does is it can read in each wavelength of light at the nanometer scale what is the absorbance or what we're seeing as a different color. It can really quantify that in the kinetics of these molecules. So via this method, what we showed is in this in vitro space or ex vivo, however you want to call it, um, here is on the y-axis, you have carboxy hemoglobin level or CO binding percentage, you could say, um, of both the CO hemoglobin in the red blood cells in the blue line and then CO neuroglobin. The neuroglobin was had no CO bound to it when it was introduced. And as you can see on this top chart, Within a minute, most of the, car of the carbon monoxide is transferred from the hemoglobin and the RBCs to the neuroglobin. Similarly, this performs in an aerobic environment. That's important, anaerobic, aerobic. We live in an aerobic environment, obviously, but these molecules can behave differently in those environments, but it's still good. So the half-life goes from greater than 500 minutes in this type of model to 25 seconds with this agent. So... How do we translate this up? How do we validate it? We developed, and this is Chinzi Zhu, who's joining us in a couple of weeks, December 1, our lab here at Maryland. He's a thoracic surgeon who's our animal surgeon for the last decade. He developed a model where we will ventilate mice and expose them to 30,000 parts per million, 3% carbon monoxide gas. And they will essentially breathe to 80, greater than 85% carboxyhemoglobin levels. They get hemodynamic collapse and death. Mice are more robust than us. They're, they, um, you have to get them very high CO levels. A human, I've never seen an 85%. They would succumb much earlier. So here we can test drug, placebo, both saline and albumin. So in this model, we expose the mice that are ventilated to four and a half minutes of CO. That's what that little cartoon is. We do a two-minute infusion of drug or control, and then we monitor these animals over 40 minutes. Here is a readout of the blood pressure in MAP versus time over 40 minutes. Those insets are showing you different time points, a little closer what the readout is. Um, the wave form is actually heartbeats. 
So um, in the top is the green, that is saline or PBS. As you can see, the mice, um, even after infusion, get more hypotensive than they die. In the bottom chart, in the purple, is mice that are infused with neuroglobin. Similarly, their blood pressure goes down with CO poisoning, but they get recovery with neuroglobin infusion and the animals live. So as we see here, this is a Kaplan-Meier curve, and this work was published in Science Translational Medicine back in 2016. Of, we had 87% survival with neuroglobin, and then 0 to 10% survival in our controls of saline or albumin. We used albumin as well to control for the colite effect of the large amount of protein we're infusing. This was associated in the mechanism of action feature of this with significant increased CO scavenging. If we go back to that cartoon where we're exposing animals for four and a half minutes of CO, then they undergo infusion, mice will clear HBCO very fast. They're usually clearing it with a half-life of 20 to 30 minutes, which is like a human in a uh, hyperbaric oxygen chamber. So in the PBS model, they had a, in just the infusion time, when you had an 85% to 90% HBCO, they would clear 10% in that short amount of time. Neuroglobin, though, in that two-minute period, cleared 30% carboxyhemoglobin levels immediately. And most of the effect was way up front. The other thing we, we tested was lactate generation, which is kind of a, a marker for, for global oxygen delivery, we'll say. Um, same model over 40 minutes. You can see here the green and the red. The animals that we could get lactate on had very high lactate levels, not surprising. Um, the animals were still critically ill, so the lactate was up, but it was up a significantly amount less so than controls. Another feature of this is pharmacokinetics. This is mouse urine in, in animals treated with, these were more moderate models of CO poisoning, so the animals weren't grossly hypotensive and not producing urine. Um, but essentially, mice will urinate out carboxyneuroglobin in this, in this model. Um, and that's actually a photo of the, of the urine. You can see it's red. If we look at the pharmacokinetics, it's cleared rapidly. It's a scavenging agent. You want it to get the CO out, get it out. In the estimated half-life clearance was 13 minutes. The other question we will often get is in this model, what is toxicity in this, in this setting? In a CO poison animal, they actually did quite well. And this is some normal kidney histology and neuroglobin-treated mice that were CO poisoned. Let's see. I've got 25 minutes. I still got a decent amount to talk about, but I'm going to try this. So the other feature of CO poisoning is mitochondrial poisoning. So what we wanted to see is if in these mice that were, were heavily carbon monoxide poisoned and treated with neuroglobin, what happened to their tissue respiration, which is a marker for mitochondrial function. So what we did is we took these mice who were in this model we took out their hearts immediately after the experiment, and we, we homogenized them and put them into this ugly-looking device, which is called a Clark electrode. Essentially, what this does is you have um, a little chamber space with the homogenate. Um, you get a magnetic stir, and then there's a Teflon membrane, so gas will go through it. There's a platinum electrode, 
And basically, oxygen will react here, and it gives you a voltage when it reacts, and that's a marker for the oxygen levels. So this is on the screen. You see a little line that's flat line. Um, when you put this tissue in, and that's your starting oxygen level. You add substrates that will make mitochondria respire through oxidative phosphorylation, which are pyruvate, malate, and ADP. And when that happens, oxygen gets consumed through oxidative phosphorylation, and the oxygen levels in this closed chamber system will actually go down. That gives you a slope, and from a slope, you can get a rate, and that's called your respiration rate. And that's a marker for how your mitochondria are working. So we published this in, um, and this is collaboration with Shruti Shiva and, and um, our lab manager and technician, um, Katie Boshan. Um, essentially, these animals, we published this in JBC in 2020, is we looked at animals that were just anesthetized and not CO poisoned, not treated with anything, just like baseline. And we got a respiration rate when we added those substrates to the closed system. That's kind of our baseline. That's a black dotted line, if you will believe me. I might have, I, I highlighted a little bit. And then we get it, we can calculate a respiration rate. So essentially we're looking at a slope and a line, oxygen levels over time. When we expose animals to CO and treat them with PBS, if you do the same thing, you get a different slope of the line and it's associated with a slower respiration rate. That's indicative of CO poisoning. In the animals that were treated with neuroglobin, however, the slope of the line was exact, almost exactly the same as those animals that were just anesthetized and faster than those who had carboxyhemoglobin plus PBS. And this was both significant. Um, so we showed kind of also that this has an effect not on just hypotension, CO scavenging. It also has an effect on, on mitochondrial function and tissue respiration. So I showed you all this data. We were super excited. We got a couple of publications out of this. Science translational medicine is obviously high impact, but then what? What do we do? So this is part of my role as entrepreneurship, innovation, is where do you take it next? So drug development in the valley of death. You have your basic science discovery. That's kind of where we were at. But then how do you get it to patients? So there's something that's very interesting called preclinical development and manufacturing development. This is called a valley of death. It's pretty clear how to do basic science discovery research, NIH, foundations, philanthropy. I'm making cool discoveries. But how do I get something to go into clinical trials in humans that big pharma, biotech, and public markets will be interested with? Because we all know that drugs cost a ton of money to make. So this is, again, your valley of death is preclinical development and manufacturing. There was a tough center for, for the study of drug development. They, in 2014, they estimated for each drug that makes it, when you count in all the losers and the money spent on those losers in the winners, one drug is $2.55 billion of investment. Costs a ton of money to get drugs to patients. So how do you get this money? It, it's not necessarily through NIH, not quite so clear. Some, some mechanisms are there called SBI or STTR grants. But a lot of times you have to start relying on things like investors, private equity, such as venture capital and angels investors, who are looking at the overall picture. How can I make a drug that makes money? Why would I put tens of millions of dollars into your product, your invention? And this is, this is difficult to do. So we chose the avenue where we did a startup company. 
And this is from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in 2018. We found at Globin Solutions, it's a play on hemoglobin, if you didn't figure it out, um, in 2017, there's a preclinical stage biotech for CO poisoning antidotes, medical countermeasures, and resuscitation. In 2018, we raised a $5.5 million Series A, smallish, um, and then a Phase 1-2 STTR NIEHS grant in 2020 towards the preclinical development of a CO scavenging agent. So this is the FDA approval pathway. The blue phase is drug discovery preclinical work. That's you do your proof of concept, and then you get to animal toxicity, where you're trying to prove that this is safe to put into humans. That, cre- that is a lot of work. In parallel, in the green, you have commercial scalable production or manufacturing. When you use a drug that goes to humans, it has to be made at an extremely high quality. It has to be reliably and repeatably reduced, produced every time. We can't just infuse garbage products in. There needs to be controls. This is where drugs get expensive, and this is where it's hard to find money, and you really got to look at alternative places. So I hate to tell you, though, that neuroglobin, we got to that proof of concept phase, but then we ended up encountering some issues with manufacturing. It's very difficult to make recombinant proteins. And I show a picture of a snail is that it's slow. When you want to get a product, this is clearly an area of high need for patients. We want to be able to utilize our concepts to get it to patients. And how do we speed that up? So what did we do? We didn't abandon neuroglobin, but we're still working on it. But realize this is going to take us some time. So we made a bit of a pivot. This is modified hemoglobin, or or GSI 2001, as it's also known as. We extract this from human blood that's been um, donated, that is expired. The nice thing about that is it's easy to get. Well, relatively easy, right? There's there's obviously issues with donated blood. But there's stuff that expires, especially AB positive, pretty regularly. Um, So you have... The process to do this is actually pretty simple to extract it compared to recombinant globin production. And it's also been manufactured by evolution to be highly redox stable, which makes it not the worst CO scavenging agent. It's not as good as neuroglobin, but it's it has some features. So we just published this this summer fall in JCI Insight. But similar to what I showed you with the neuroglobin, we did the same experiment where we poisoned RBCs with carbon monoxide and followed them spectroscopically. And we we injected different CO scavenging agents or hemoproteins. Um, So here in the black dotted line is PBS control. Um, In time and minutes is on the x-axis. Y-axis is the amount of the hemoglobin bound to carbon monoxide in this ex vivo model. So in PBS, it slowly went down. But when we added these other heme-containing agents, it went down quite rapidly within minutes. Not as fast as neuroglobin, but it's still pretty fast compared to PBS. The next picture is actually the amount of the scavenging agents that's bound to carbon monoxide. And as you can see, they went up to 80%. They didn't go to 100%. They went to 80%. They're more in an equilibrium state because they have closer affinity to CO as the, the natural wild type hemoglobin. But it's still doing scavenging. And so if we look at the actual numbers on CO affinity, 
stripped hemoglobin or what we're calling modified hemoglobin here with the arrow is 3.9 times 10 to the eighth. If you look at the T-state hemoglobin, though, that's still orders of magnitude higher. And if you look at the bottom, cytochrome C oxidase, it's orders of magnitude higher than the CO affinity or Ka as a um, it's several orders of magnitude higher. So it still can work. So if we put this back in our severe model of CO poisoning, because it was easier to make, we actually were able to both validate efficacy in a nice dose response, which is very important when you're developing a drug. So again, the mice are ventilated with 30,000 parts per million uh, carbon monoxide. Then you get to 85% levels, hemodynamic collapse and death. And what you can see here is with the dose, we actually produce a Kaplan-Meier curve on the left here where survival has a dose-response effect. And these are lower; these lowest doses are much lower than what we were given of neuroglobin. The higher doses are more akin to it, about 1,280 to 1,600 is where the neuroglobin was you can see there's a dose response. And also, um, on the right, you have the actual delta of the carboxyhemoglobin level, which has a, a nice linear relationship, R equals 0.98, between dose and the amount of CO scavenging. So when we look at the modified hemoglobin program, if we fill in the boxes, where are we at? We actually have done, we did all our efficacy findings and TK, we actually, at a contract research organization, did rat and mini pig dose range finding safety studies. We've optimized a formulation and done a method to develop this. We actually did a GMP-like manufacturing at a CMO, at scale, to produce this and to get drugs in humans. So we're a lot further along. We actually are having our pre-IND meeting next month, December 13th. Send me good vibes that day. Um, What's next if it goes well? What are we proposing? We're going to propose to do good lab practice, which is basically a very well-controlled, very expensive study in mini pigs. We're also going to do a hemodynamic study to look really closely at the, um, the effects of these drugs on hemodynamics. We're also going to do a full GMP manufacturing process. And if that goes well, the next phase in this is to really go into humans, get an IND. And so what we're proposing is we're actually thinking about going into healthy volunteers that get a low level of CO exposure, which has been done before and done safely and well tolerated, and giving those, those volunteers our drug. And that's how we would test both safety and a prelim marker for outcomes. If that's successful, then you would go in, because this is kind of an orphan drug space, oftentimes you can do a phase one, two, and then go right into your pivotal trial, where they're usually smaller if they're orphan. But if we model at something 150 to 200 patients, that could potentially enable a BLA or FDA approval to get into humans. So next steps for our program is we're continuing lead optimization with our modified hemoglobin. As I just talked about, we have a pre-ND meeting coming up. We're continuing to develop our more potent CO scavengers, really focusing on the manufacturing, novel manufacturing methods. And we're also investing methods to test real-world safety and efficacy of these agents. What will that study look like? Further, as we're developing and creating know-how around hemoprotein-based CO scavenging agents, could we expand this into artificial oxygen carriers? There's been challenges with hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers. That's a whole other talk for decades, trying to make artificial blood. But our thoughts are, if we take a non-hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier, could we be more successful? 
with really engineering the affinity molecules and getting past some of those challenges. Again, that's a different talk. But we actually were awarded a DOD grant to do this back in April. So I've talked enough. I want to give some acknowledgments to both the Gladwin Lab and the carbon monoxide team. We're obviously with the move, we're, we're breaking up the band a little bit. A lot of us are coming, but we're still going to have a lab at Pitt. Some people are leaving, but it's been, it's been great to work with this team. Getting good people is very tough. And I can't, uh, I can't uh, talk highly enough about the team we've had over the, the last five to 10 years. They've just been amazing, hard work, very dedicated. Also show our funding and support. We've obviously had a lot of support from government entities. Right now I've got a KO8. We just completed a phase one, two STTR I had mentioned. Also previous support from Parker B. Francis and some other organizations. And then also now this Department of Defense JPC-6 Battlefield Resuscitation for Immediate Stabilization for Combat Casualties Award. And then the collaborators and mentors over the years and all the logos associated with these awards. So thank you for your attention. And um, I'm open to any questions. Thank you for sharing this, Jason. It's It's been really cool to watch you over the last almost 10 years that we've known each other from how this project kind of started and how it's developed and how close you are to this being a reality of a drug that we have to offer. Um, so I'm really happy you shared a part of your journey here as well. Um, <clears throat> I have a couple Thank questions you. for you, but I was going to open it up to the audience first to see if anyone had any questions for Dr. Rose. Uh, 